This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Brooklyn, New York. And this is your guest, Dave Temkin, uh, from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina right now. Outstanding, Dave. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start with your background and uh, where you're at in your career. Uh, sure. So I, I've been doing, let's just call it network stuff, for uh, over 20 years now. Basically, I started when I was in high school uh, and kind of grew my career from there. I never went to college, which... Um, you know, for, for many years in my you know, earlier career was certainly, you know, was, was a hindrance after it was a help. Um, but nowadays it feels like it doesn't matter all that much. Uh, and I've been at Netflix now for, um, geez, uh, over 12 years. How did you get into the networking world early part of your career? So when I was in high school, um, I was a total uh, introverted nerd. And I guess, I mean, honestly, I'm still an introverted nerd. So I guess it's not just, much has changed so, there. It's just so chic now. Uh, it is. I mean, now now I think we're, we're technically a protected class. Um, but <laughs> I uh, back then, I was just a, a dork. And so... Um, I was like the first person I got, I worked with uh, still a close friend to set up the high school BBS, you know, when we were all still in the BBS days dialing in. And that also happened to be right kind of in the transition time to when like web, the web is just really in its nascent state. And so we also got the, the first website for the school district stood up. Um, I managed to get a independent study in telecommunications, which was like my first period of the day, five days a week. And it was like pretty much the best scam ever because what I got to do was roll in whenever I wanted to, because I did, I wasn't technically there for attendance and the teacher who would take attendance would just mark me as there every day. Um, and so I just showed up when I wanted to show up. And then I, you know, either played with fixed or broke things, uh, and then went on with my life for the rest of the day. Um, but I wasn't a great student. <laughs> I actually tested pretty well, but I hated homework. And so what I had done was the first summer, I'm going to say it was my junior year in high school, I actually got an internship at Bristol Myers Squibb. And these internships like normally went to, to college students, not just like a junior in high school. But I had a friend who talked his boss, he's like, hey, know this person. He like set up his BBS, set up this website, like completely understands this stuff. You know, clearly there's a lot of potential here. Um, you know, can we get him, uh, can we get him an internship? And um, the, the person who became my manager, this guy, Chris Baldwin, took a shot and gave me this internship. And um, when I came in the door, basically they put me on help desk and I was like taking phone calls for people with broken printers and like they couldn't mount drives on like Windows NT machines and things like that. And, you know, Phil, you've known me long enough to know that, like, how do you think I would be at tech support? <laughs> um, I, 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 can, I can imagine you getting a little uh, frustrated. 
Yeah, it's just not for me. Like, yeah, again, dorky introvert. If you remember, there was the the Saturday Night Live. Yeah, sketch. Jimmy Fallon, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was like the I forget, it was like the computer guy or something, right. and like he was supposed to be doing tech support, and like the person would try to explain it to him for like three seconds, and then he would just be like, "Move!" and yeah. shove them out and of the way. Exactly. We have a code. We have a, a, what code ID ten T. Yeah, exactly. And so that was like, that was me. And it really wasn't playing very well. And, um, but they saw that I had this kind of like really strong interest in networks and they're like, go shadow the network, the network teams, the, this guy in networking. And I was like, okay, please. Yeah, I would love that. That sounds amazing. Um, I remember whenever I would go in, when I was doing desktop support, like we would have to change. And this is the days before you could just log into a switch and change a VLAN, you know, it'd have to go move a cable from one hub to another hub to put someone onto a different network. Uh, I remember looking at this like equipment in awe. I'm like, oh, what is this like this fiber optic cabling? What is this stuff? Like, this is crazy. Like, what does this all do? I don't understand, but I want to understand. So, you know, they, it was like a perfect fit. They moved me over um, and I shadowed this guy, Mike, who I think really didn't like me very much. <laughs> and, um, but he also knew that like, uh, there was some potential there and like wanted to see if he could help. And he really did. And what I managed to do was I parlayed that internship into a co-op while I was um, uh, still in high school. And so going into my junior year, um, uh, the guidance counselors at the high school had this discussion with my parents about like, you know, David seems really technically adept. He seems like he understands concepts of a lot of things and like, you know, can write, read, and like, you know, all the things we expect people to do, but he won't do any homework and like he's going to fail all of his classes. And so part of the reason why I wouldn't do any homework was because I would start this job. They gave me this co-op job at Bristol at like 5 p.m. and work from like 5 p.m. till 10 p.m., like four or five days a week. And I was like, would much rather do that than do homework. That was way more entertaining. And so um, they're like, you know, there's this tech school thing. We can send him to tech school and he can get half the credits he needs to graduate high school at this tech school. And like, you know, it's Votech. So it's like, you know, auto repair and haircutting and things like that. And like just this very new computer program. And of course, they send me to that. That actually makes total sense. It probably saves me from failing out of high school. And I get there and like the first thing I do is configure their frame relay, their FRAD, <laughs> to connect to the intermediate unit to get them internet access, which they've been struggling with for weeks. So like I get that up and running and it's great and whatever. And um, uh, I uh, managed to turn the co-op into effectively, instead of going to the Votech school four out of five days a week, I go straight to Bristol-Myers Squibb. So I go to high school in the morning. I have one period of independent study, get two periods of things that you have to take, like English and a math credit and some phys ed credit. And then I can leave and I get in my car and I'm a junior with a parking permit, which is a big deal in Council Rock High School at the time. Uh, and so I get in my car and I get to drive uh, to Bristol-Myers and I work like an eight-hour day. And it's great. And they're paying me and it just makes total sense. So I'm doing this and like it is um, uh, this, this like really cool job at this point 
where I'm learning and they're paying me and whatever. And um, I managed to do that for two years through graduating high school. And it totally saved me from, like I said, flunking out. And it totally set me up for where I am today. And, you know, I, I, I can thank, you know, I can look back specifically on one or two people, uh, one person specifically who I mentioned before, Chris Baldwin, you know, he saw this in me and was like, Hey, this, this person has this potential. Let's, let's figure out how to harness it. And even though I was this pain in the ass, 16 year old, even though I'm a pain in the ass, 40 year old now, um, he totally figured out how to, to do that. And I am eternally grateful to him. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. Um, but I, I, I like totally owe my career to him. And then like from there, it was like right around the time of the dot-com boom. And so I moved, I like got lowered to go work with another friend for Gateway 2000, okay, the, the computer company with the cows. And our job was to move. They're going to take down Dell. Yes, they were totally going to take down Dell and they bought ALR right around that same time, which was a server manufacturer. And they thought they were just going to own the whole market. And our job was to move their move, move their data center from, uh, 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 what is it like? I know, right? I should totally, clearly that's still their marketing. Uh, I still have a squishy cow that I use, like a stress cow that I still have from those days. I don't have it with me right now, but digress. So um, I went to Bristol Myers and, or Bristol Myers, uh, Gateway. And our job was to move their website from, I guess it was, would have been like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where it was hosted in like the closet of a warehouse to Exodus, if you remember the Exodus days, the Exodus data centers uh, in Jersey City. And so we spent a fortune, bought a ton of servers, then they shipped us a bunch of ALR servers, and I got my first hands on a router because I really wasn't working on routing when I was at Bristol Myers. I was much more, I did the conversion both from hubs and token ring to ethernet switching. That was like the the big deal at the time that I had gotten to work on, but very little layer three. And so, of course, I cut my teeth at Gateway within the first week by redistributing the full BGP table into Rift V2 and getting it to the point where we literally had to go power down the 7,500 routers that everything was coming into uh, and to, in order to reboot them because I had just completely hung them so badly. Um, but I learned a lot in that job and I learned uh, so much about how the internet worked. And, you know, I remember, and someone who I still respect a ton and who still is in this industry, um, reading Avi Friedman's tutorials on BGP. Um, you know, he's a, he's a Philly guy, as am I. And, you know, I had a ton of respect for him and I remember seeing him out and about in the BBS days. And then afterwards, um, you know, he's one of the first people who I bought internet access from when I was buying enterprise internet internet access in the Philly area. So, um, so anyway, it was like at, at that job for a while. Uh, and then the dot-com crash happened and I ended up back in, um, the financial world, or I should say starting in the financial world and worked for a very large options trading firm at the, at that time, they were like number three or four in total options volume on the NASDAQ uh, and worked there for a while, um, basically, you know, doing financialist stuff. And this is like the days before high frequency trading, but we were definitely pretty far along the curve. Like I was moving 
what were analog voice circuits to to you know H three two three because we didn't really have SIP at that point, and like trying to get as many of these legacy systems things when I walked in there that were still on X twenty five to get all this stuff to run over IP, and so that was super cool and worked there for a while. I was there through nine eleven and and the tragedy and the crisis. Then you know we had an office uh, at two Rector uh, Street, which is right around the corner from the World Trade Center, and also uh, forty Wall Street, um, and so we. You know, I was part of that disaster recovery from a from a network perspective. You know, that definitely taught me a lot um, in just kind of crisis management and how to think about that type of stuff. Um, and then, you know, I got sick and tired of being in the financial world, and I moved over. I'd gotten lured to uh, a startup called Right Media, and um, Phil smiles because he knows this is where you know him and I start to intersect. Um, and this is like geez, has to be 15 plus years ago at this point. Um, but they were one of the first ad tech startups uh, or ad tech companies in the world for what we think of as current like modern ad tech today, where they're serving billions of ad impressions uh, a day. Uh, and, you know, their biggest competitor at that point was DoubleClick. And DoubleClick really wasn't that much bigger than them. But Google then bought DoubleClick. Um, my job at 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 right media really was was kind of the first time where I kind of got handed the keys and was told, "Hey, go build this infrastructure." And some of it had already been built, but it all needed to be torn out and redone. It was built kind of on the fly by someone who didn't understand infrastructure. Um, but hey, here are the keys. Go build this infrastructure. Um, go hire people. Go do what you need to do within you know certain budget constraints. And um, I just kind of fell into it. And it certainly, it like was natural. It was like, I totally gelled with it. And I was like, this is what I'm good at. I'm good at this like logistical and tactical and even architectural side of like, how do we take this technology and put it into action? And this is both, you know, network and server and thinking all the way through things like, you know, power and cooling, which, you know, Phil and I have a storied history on from his data center. We don't need to get into that here. Um, I can I can tell you the, the, these two things about who came out on top. Dave Temkin has hair. Philip Koblenz does not. So take from that what you will. But clearly, uh, I'm worse for the wear. Um, you can't see the gray, I think. But I definitely, um, and I'm I'm not that far behind you on the hair front in general. But but you know that was that was actually probably honestly some of the most stressful time of my life. Not just not just your data center, Phil, and our power <laughs> travails there. Um, but uh, just in general, it was all on my shoulders to get this infrastructure up and running globally. And like I got, I went on like my first international business trip to London and like things like that, just like super at the time novel to me. And now, although right now I'm obviously not getting on a plane and traveling to London uh, as much as I would really like to, uh, but like getting on a plane and traveling to London back then was like this big deal. And like, oh my God, I'm going to go travel all the way to London and go figure out how to build a data center here. Um, and, you know, working with the teams who got all this deployed was just, you know, so much fun, but also at the same time, so incredibly stressful. And I learned so much about the entirety of the business at that point. Um, and, uh, I learned also the hard way how to negotiate for stock at a startup and, um, I, you know, if I'm being honest, I don't feel like I got rewarded the way I would have hoped to have gotten rewarded back then. 
um, in hindsight. And I think everyone who's ever worked at a startup can tell you that story of the first exit they were a part of that they didn't realize what they were negotiating for. That's um, what makes them smarter on the next go around. A hundred percent. I absolutely, if you sat me right down now and like put a term sheet in front of me, I would know exactly the questions to ask. We could talk about dilution. We could talk about like all the fun stuff. Um, but back then I had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, and so I kind of winged it and, you know, I'm good at winging it with certain things. And that was definitely not a thing I should have winged it for because I probably had more leverage than I knew. Uh, so uh, from there, I went and um, uh, Yahoo bought us. Yahoo bought us because DoubleClick bought us or bought, uh, sorry, geez, sorry, tongue tied. Yahoo bought us because Google bought DoubleClick and Yahoo felt like they had to have an answer to the same ad tech stuff that Google was getting into. And like we could, you know, you can sure you could have a whole kind of con contra po uh, podcast to talk about the failures of Yahoo in the space over the years. And like everything else, Yahoo completely destroyed right media. Um, but you had a lot of passionate people who were willing to try to work with this and so, uh, and try to make it work. And so we went, you know, I moved to California. They, you know, they were like, hey, let's keep principal technical people around. And they asked me to move and I did. And so I ended up there for a couple of years. And, you know, frankly, just Yahoo at that point um, had just rebuffed the uh, Microsoft offer. And so that little amount of stock that I did have got cut in half um, because they're shares fell precipitously after that and never recovered. And I had a deal with my partner, my, my husband, um, that if uh, I ever got tired of Yahoo, we would move back east because he really did not love living in San Francisco. But another friend then referred me to Netflix. And I was like, well, you know, Netflix is pretty cool. We get our three DVDs a week from them at that point. Um, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I went and worked on that. And he's like, all right, fine. So I went, worked at Netflix. Um, and this is in the very, very early streaming days. We had some like really, really awful stuff on streaming. 99.99% of what you would want to watch was still on DVD at that point. Um, but we were kind of learning how to, how to do it. And so, you know, I got there at that point, all of our infrastructure was in a couple of, of Quest data centers, you know, now CenturyLink, uh, and was responsible for that network infrastructure. Was there for a couple of years, they decided to make the switch to the cloud. And at that point, we also weren't running our own content delivery network that was outsourced to like Limelight, Akamai, and, and Level 3. And I was kind of like, you know what? This is not that interesting to me. I, I'm, I'm an infrastructure guy, so I, you know, I could certainly try to adapt, but at the same time, I wasn't thrilled with how the company was going culturally. This was right on the precipice of Quickster, if either of you remember mm -hmm. Quickster, which was the ill-advised attempt. I shouldn't say ill-advised, ill-conceived attempt to um, split the Netflix DVD and streaming business, which 100% made sense from a business strategy perspective, right? If, you know, you, you read the, um, the Innovator's Dilemma or, you know, other books like that, talk a lot about things like um, companies who get caught in, how do I make money right now? Let me continue investing in that, not how am I gonna make money in five, 10 or 15 years? And so this is like, I don't need the distraction of DVD 
So let me get rid of that now and just focus on what's going to make us money in five or 10 years, even if it's going to cause us some pain. And they just didn't do a great job of communicating it. And I think, frankly, if they had thought that through a little bit better, it would have been successful. But it didn't matter because they ended up really kind of functionally splitting the company anyway. We just didn't split it from a customer perspective at that point. I digress. So I chose to leave and I made a very, and, and this is because I got a job offer from Bridgewater Associates. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, in Connecticut, they're the largest private hedge fund in the world by assets under management. They are infamous for their culture. Um, and Ray Dalio is this you know, figurehead who, who, you know, at this point mostly just espouses their culture. And they were super jazzed to get someone from Netflix because Netflix is so known for its culture between, you know, at that time, the culture deck and now the culture memo and Reed being this, you know, cult of personality from a culture perspective. They're like, all right, yeah, no, we totally want to do this. So they relocated me back to New York and I went and worked there for a few months and found that in my opinion, the culture had nothing to do with the Netflix culture, even though they felt like it did. And I actually remember Ray had sent this email to the whole company comparing, contrasting Netflix culture to Bridgewater culture. And I read this after having only been there a couple of weeks. And I was like, this is completely wrong. And my boss is like, well, you should tell Ray that because that's supposed to be our culture. And so I emailed Ray and I never heard back from him. So I, I digress. I hated it there. I left after three months. Uh, and then, you know, I had a short stint somewhere else. And then Netflix, my boss literally, you know, Yahoo gimmed me. This is, you know, 12 years ago now and said, hey, I think, you know, we're changing our mind on doing a content delivery network. If we do that, do you want to build the network? And I was like, well, I kind of like my job, but hell yeah. And so um, they, we had a bunch of back and forth and there was a small amount of drama where I had to come back and basically say, okay, here's why I left. You know, I, I understand things are different now. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, is it okay if I come back more or less with, with the other people? Uh, and it was fine. And so I came back and, you know, I've been there since I came back. I left as a manager. I came back as an individual contributor. I went back to being a manager and then I went to being a director and now I'm a vice president. And so now uh, I'm responsible for uh, the network as well as our systems and storage infrastructure for for the entirety of the business at this point. So um, originally it was just for the content delivery network, but now I actually have um, the studio aspect under me as well. So if anybody, if anybody that's listening um, has ever seen Fauda, you can thank Dave Temkin that you've seen Fauda or that, you know, awesome, you know, Michael Jordan uh, thing, Dave Temkin. Yeah, that's totally hundred percent me. <laughs> no, um, uh, but it is, I will say if you had asked me, you know, 20 years ago, where would you be in your career? Like what I think that my career in any way, you know, uh, intersected with Hollywood. No, I would have like no freaking concept of that whatsoever, but yeah, you know, I'm running a network somewhere or whatever. I don't know. And that's, and you know, and that's what we try to, uh, uh, try to espouse on, on the podcast is the idea that, you know, um, the people that get into technology are in this kind of bubble and it doesn't spread to other verticals or media or finance is not, is, is certainly no longer true, but hasn't been true for some time. I mean, there's, there is no vertical that doesn't utilize the skill set of, 
uh, of someone that gets gets into critical infrastructure. So, you know, you are facilitating media, obviously, directly now, but even as someone that's in the data center world or running networks or, or whatever, it is what is enabling all of these other industries in such a real and direct way that the, the line between like technology company and not technology company is, uh, you know, is, has never been thinner if a line even exists. I mean, there is, there is no line. I mean, at this point, if you are, you know, transacting any sort of real business, you're on, you're, you have some amount of infrastructure, whether that's an iPad and an access point to get you internet access for that iPad so that you can process a payment, or, you know, you have multiple data centers across, you know, continents. Either way, you're, you're somehow using technology for business. You know, I'm down here, like I mentioned in Hilton Head, South Carolina, normally I'm, I'm up in Hoboken, New Jersey, but we come down here um, for a few months a year. Uh, you know, I, I drive to farm stands and, and you know, the, our favorite, which is random places on the side of the road that sell shrimp down here because um, nothing says high quality shrimp like <laughs> um, a gas station parking lot. But I, I'll say you get some amazing fresh local shrimp down here. If you're willing to uh, you're willing to take some chances. But, you know, especially now in you know, our pandemic world where you, um, you know, most people don't want to handle cash. Everyone's got a square terminal or something like that. Like, you know, you've got this person who knows nothing other than how to take his boat out and get some shrimp. And now he knows how to process payments and he knows how to take an email address and you know, stuff like that. And, you know, 10 years ago, you would have never thought that. It's a data rush, like back in the day, it used to be the gold rush. Uh, we live, live in a digital economy now, so it's a data rush. Dave, what an inspirational story. The common theme that I've come across the fact, typically people like you and, and others that have actually had the option to interview, uh, that were the change agents, that were fighting the conventional way of schooling and education in the country. Uh, in your particular scenario, it was you were very fortunate that you, you found your interest at a very younger age. And you were able to go to vocational school. You were able to get uh, an internship very early on in your career. What would you recommend the younger generation that's potentially facing those similar challenges? Yeah, I mean, you've got a great point. And, you know, I think about I've thought about that a lot. You know, there's I, I recognize my privilege in all of this. Like when I really think about how good I've had it, you know, I'm a I'm a gay man who, you know, I'm white. I'm, you know, uh, cis presenting, I generally don't have any like problems from that aspect. So like, I, I realized that I had it super easy and that there, it's really easy to, to forget that people have it, like cannot have this necessarily same experience, either because of their background or who they are or what they do. Um, I, I remember when I was at, at vocational school, one of the things they would do is you, you went four days a week to your job and then one day a week you went there for like career counseling and some other classes. And I remember um, one of the, the things they would do is they would do a class trip where some of the people in your class would come and watch what you do for work for a day. And they did them, they, they brought them to Bristol Myers Squibb over in Princeton and um, like, the teacher was like, I, okay, I, I had no idea it was, you're basically working an executive, like not executive, but an office job at this point uh, that, you know, you're not out there slinging cables and stuff. And um, I, 
she was like, yeah, you don't need to come in for that once a week thing anymore. You can just go to go to work five days a week. We're good. Uh, like that again, like just super privileged. So like when I think about from what people could or should do, you know, the biggest thing at this point is just like the curiosity aspect and just asking everyone a lot of questions because eventually someone engages with you and sees that, that potential because, you know, frankly, it is hard to make inroads without some sort of sponsor, without someone who's there to help, whether that's a teacher or a boss or, you know, a, a, a more senior friend or a family member or something like that. You need someone who's kind of get, going to get you to that first step. And, you know, I, I know that I personally am trying to find ways to engage, whether that's going back to school, like helping people or, or you know, working with organizations that are more um, focused on youth and tech. And some of the outreach work that I've done, for example, uh, at, when I was on the board at Nanog, you know, I, I founded the College Immersion Program, which is super ironic because as we talked about, I didn't go to college, but like the whole point of the program was to go find people who potentially would have an interest in infrastructure and figure out how to get them engaged with this community to help get them, first of all, excited about what we do, because it's really easy, you know, I'm pointing at my iPhone, even though we're not doing video here, but you know, it's really easy to engage with an app be curious about how an app works and how it's written. And it's funny, my brain doesn't work like that. I could care less about how these apps on my phone work. They're totally utilitarian to me. I know most of them are written in Swift, but like aside from that, I couldn't write Swift if my life depended on it. Couldn't write most programming languages aside from maybe basic and Perl, unless my life depended on it. Um, and so uh, what we need, you know, what we are trying to do is get younger people excited about like, okay, well, when I press this button, what happens behind that? Like, where's the, what's, what's that touching? What's the infrastructure? What's the cabling? What's the fiber that it rides to get there? And, you know, where, what data center is that in? And like, how, how do we get data centers to work? How do we get the power and the cooling and all that other fun stuff? And so finding those types of organizations that have that kind of outreach is, is probably pretty key if you're in a position where you can, where you can reach out, if you're, you're a younger person who can find a nanog in North America or ripe in Europe or, you know, uh, apricot in Asia, those network operator groups are definitely helpful. And what we've seen is we've seen smaller groups splinter off of those to people who are younger and who really are just starting trying to get started because it can be really intimidating to just show up at one of those whether it's virtually or in person and you know we assign in the case of nanog we assign sponsors to people and just like hey how do we get you to meet people how do we get you to figure out what is important to you and how can we help I think I think it's an incredible point, and and you know part of the the benefit that really uh, both of us had was the timing that we were kind of coming into our own. Like the invention of the internet happened when we were at the age where we were there, like at the kind of industrial revolution, right? So we're not really intimidated by the underlying infrastructure as kids because there is no basis for comparison. There is like rotary phone 
touchtone phone, and then, you know, now this new reality. And, and something I'm struck by, I have two children. I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And something I'm struck by is how well they um, are able to pick up like the phone and usage of the apps and they don't kind of understand how it works. But what I try to, to tell them until I'm blue in the face is, you know, trying to explain to them why it works. And there's nothing from, you know, from, from, um, from the standpoint of what they, the curriculum and, and their schools to the extent that they used to go to school. That's a thing that might never happen again, but they used to go to school. It wasn't that long ago. Um, is that the, the curriculums aren't really designed to, to talk about like the underlying mechanics of technology in many cases, because, you know, some of the teachers that have now had to adapt to telelearning and, and technology in a way that they hadn't before, it's just not a skill set that you typically put in early childhood education. And we take for granted the fact that we're not intimidated by underlying infrastructure because we were there when it was invented. So we had to learn how it worked. And that's why our generation, certainly your generation of engineers are so, you know, are, are so unique in that you understand all of the underlying technologies and infrastructure in a way that, you know, a systems engineer today or a computer engineer today thinks, you know, the Amazon API is, is how compute infrastructure is deployed at, without a recognition that there are pieces of hardware that are on the backside of that. There are, you know, network cards and motherboards and, and RAM and things that, no, you know, people are now, again, totally intimidated to even think about or touch because they just don't have, you can't even take apart a laptop anymore, like a Mac, a MacBook laptop. You, there's no battery. There's no screw that has a normal head on it. Um, you can't even upgrade the hard drive on, on the latest ones because it's just all soldered and, and it's just, you know, they're keeping people away from that infrastructure um, as possible. I don't even know what the question is, but help fix it. <laughs> no, I mean, you're entirely right. I mean, what's the, the, the cute, bumper sticker, which is like the cloud is just someone else's computer. I mean, which is entirely true. It is someone else's computer. Um, it is not that different from if you just deployed that computer yourself. Uh, it has certainly consolidated. I remember when I first you know, started working in the internet industry, you had hundreds and thousands of, of these small networks that had small amounts of capacity behind them. And now it's all rolled up behind, you know, Amazon and Google and, and Microsoft and, you know, some of the smaller cloud players are, you know, they're, they're in there, but they're niche and they're, they're, you know, they're surviving, but they're not at nearly at the scale of others. But all of these companies need people to work on this stuff. And, you know, if I'm being honest, it's not easy to recruit. You know, we, we hire a decent amount of people every year and like, People don't just fall out of trees in, into jobs. And, you know, Netflix has pretty you know, notoriously high standards for people, but it's not even that. It's that just in general, the candidate pool is not the size that you would expect it to be. But, you know, what we are starting to see is more people who are interested in this stuff at a younger age where we're getting reach outs for things like co-ops and internships and things like that. Um, you know, we've been working with historically underserved communities to try to find people who, um, to, to Nabil's point, may otherwise find it hard to engage. And so, you know, we're going out to HBCUs and we're going to, you know, we're going internationally and we're talking about, hey, this is what our, what our technology is and what our challenges are. You know, if this is exciting to you, then let's talk and let's figure out how you can, you know, develop your career here. And a few years ago, that it wasn't how we thought about it. It was like, no, we, we only hire, you know, super senior people who, you know, can just 
basically be dropped into a role and can just perform and that doesn't scale. Yeah, so a couple of things come out of it, right? So one is that we've actually created this UI and user experience whereby that's what the, the current generation is building their lives, their careers, and their future on. The second part of it is that we've created this term called automagic in the industry that the executive management thinks that automagically there will be people that will come and work on the foundation elements. However, there aren't any because we're not talking about it openly. Hence, you know, where Phil and I being on the speaking circuit in data centers and technology and other conferences here before started the, the, the concept of Nomad Futurist that we actually need to voice our opinion and bring stories like yours to the general populace. Of yeah, Especially I now mean, that I, they know I, nerds can take international they, business trips. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I never realized, you know, growing up, how much I would enjoy this kind of stuff. I would never really uh, traveled very much, except for the, like Florida when I was a kid. So you know, it's totally a thing. Although, by itself. yeah, <laughs> well, that could be a podcast in and of itself. But it is definitely a totally different thing. And like now, it's it's exciting to go and be able to talk about this, you know, this stuff with people who have just such different backgrounds and different needs um, and different abilities and to just explore, you know, what the possibilities are, you know, both in getting people more involved and also just like, how do we collaborate? How do we work together and, and all that kind of fun stuff? So what's that one takeaway? If you look back at your entire career, that one thing that stands out for Dave Temkin that you would emphasize on and share with, with the younger generation to focus on? I, I definitely have to fall back on you need a mentor. You need someone and you need someone to um, help you and you need someone to call you out when you're not, <laughs> when you're, when you're, you know, not doing what you need to be doing. And, you know, you need to find that person and, or hopefully they find you, uh, and you need to engage with that person and you need to trust that person with your life. And that, that to me, um, I can just look back on, you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned Chris, I mentioned Mike who, you know, like I said, I don't think really liked me all that much, at least at that point, but he respected me and I respected him an awful lot to the point where the next job I was at, when there was a position open as a peer of mine, he was the first person who I recruited, even though I really didn't feel like we were buds in any way, shape or form. And that is because I really looked up to him from a mentorship perspective and thought to myself, hey, this person is smart. This person understands it and just gets it. And this person can teach me a lot. That's a great message. I mean, finding finding the mentor and believing in somebody and trusting them to to help with your career. If you had to, uh, if you had to pinpoint like the characteristic of uh, you know the kids that are seeking out uh, these types of mentors and and you know um, you know perhaps you trust is one of them. Uh, another one is you know in this. In, in, in the current uh, type of environment we are, you know, you, you find uh, a lot of younger folks and even, even adults are reticent to, um, you know, be maybe embarrassed that they don't know something. You know, everyone wants to be, you know, hyper, uh, a, a hyper expert in everything that they're involved in. I know even my kids, you know, he's, uh, he plays Minecraft and he's like, I'm a god at Minecraft. 
and I look at him, I don't really know how to play Minecraft, but I can assure you, you're not doing it right. But he has to be a god in order to want to participate. So, you know, how, how much of that, uh, I don't know if it's it's the, the word uh, humble or, or trusting, you know, what, 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 what is the, you know, the, the type of confidence that you need a, as a kid to be able to, you know, kind of seek that out? You need to be able to ask questions that you think are stupid or you think that someone is going to judge you for um, not knowing. And it doesn't matter. You need to just like get over that hump. And I'll be honest, in, in my 40 years at this point, sometimes that still challenges me. Sometimes I just think to myself, I should know this and I don't and it's going to be embarrassing. But that curiosity aspect of like asking questions is what's going to get you over that hump and get you to a place where people are like, okay, this person is engaged, this person is interested, and they are genuine. And, you know, there there, there are no stupid questions and yeah, there really are no stupid people. At the end of the day, you know, you are trying to learn something. You're trying, you know, these, these are people who we, we hope are the future of this industry. The best thing they could possibly do is ask an awful lot of questions. I can assure you from my experience with Dave Temkin that nine times out of 10, he's the smartest person in the room. So I can see how it would be difficult for you to, uh, to, to, to ask a question. That and then one out of 10 it. times, I'm just yeah. the loudest. Yeah. <laughs> and that counts. Life is a confidence game, man. <laughs> it is. All right. So let's pivot for a second to um, to the the times that uh, that we're living in right now. You have this this huge, obviously, disruption that's going on um, since March. Everybody working from home. Obviously, you know, technology companies are are, are fairly well suited uh, from a digital transformation standpoint to have the tools to be able to 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 deal with you know the the, the COVID disrupt, disruption or COVID times or whatever the trending hashtag of the moment is. The new normal. The new normal. I forgot. Um, well, it's it's already the old normal, Phil. Yeah, the old normal, the new abnormal, new which normal. is I like the uh, Molly Jongfest and uh, and Rick Wilson uh, new abnormal. I think this is <laughs> is perfect. Um, I guess the uh, the question you you manage you know a, a large team um, and you know you've you've had to um, you know kind of uh, adjust and, and communicate with them and, um, and and make decisions based on that. What have you noticed as you know the biggest takeaways, the biggest uh, disruptions, if you will, the biggest changes that you think have either some level of permanence or you think might go back to the way they were once we get uh, past whatever it is is happening? Right I mean, at this point, the best thing we can do is be empathetic because it's tough. I can't pinpoint one specific thing. I have people who I work with who are struggling with childcare. I have people who I work with right now who are you know basically running away from fires while struggling with childcare. You know, this is this is a rapidly evolving situation. Um, I have people who are struggling with elder care. And just in general, uh, everyone's kind of in a different place from a mental health perspective. I know that this has been challenging for me, even as an introvert who before thought to myself, oh no, yeah, great. Friday night at home sounds great. Um, to like now it's like I really would like to go out somewhere. And so uh, I think that stuff bleeds into your work interactions and that frustration you have and that kind of social longing that's missing um, both is a good thing and a bad thing because it can also be exhausting. You just get Zoom fatigue. And I think that's the thing that I see the most, which is like, 
you know, I used to sit on video conferences all the time and it wasn't that big of a deal, or at least I thought it wasn't. But now that everyone is, it seems like everyone is is struggling to some extent. And, you know, I was reading a, a paper that made sense to me, but I don't want to say is necessarily correct because I'm not you know, able to judge that where it's like, if you and I, or, you know, the three of us are sitting in a room and we're having a discussion, we get the visual cues from each other instantly. I can see if your eyes move in a, you know, in a, in a certain fashion, or if you know, your hands move or whatever that might be. And, you know, your brain is processing that in nanoseconds and you can choose whether to start speaking or whether to, you know, flip the table over or whatever you want to do in a pretty rapid fashion. You are from Jersey. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm technically from the Northeast Philadelphia suburbs, so I don't want to overstate that, my, my Jersey cred. Um, but I, I call it a hoagie, not a suburb grinder. Um, but I, uh, um, uh, you, you get those cues in nanoseconds and you can you know, judge your reaction based on that. And if we're on Zoom or Meet or whatever, you know, at the best, we're 50 milliseconds from each other in that interaction whatever you've done, you've done long before um, it actually is presented to me and long after I've started speaking. And so our brains are probably super confused at this point, trying to work that out. And I think I look back on that. And I think a lot of other people and even myself have struggled with that in the past, where I've been a remote person, I was one of the first people who was remote at Netflix. Uh, and everyone else is sitting in a conference room, and you feel like you're always disrupting, you feel like you're interrupting a conversation, because you can never quite get into it without basically bowling over someone who is already trying to speak because there's not that there's not that cue of like my head popped up or my you know eyes engaged with the current speaker so uh, i think all of that together puts us all in a situation where it's like stressful and exhausting and you know to your point of the new normal i, I don't know what that is i i hope that we find a good middle ground because i know that this right now at 100% is not sustainable. There's a there's a, there's that show Upload. I don't know if you've seen it on like Amazon Prime. I think it's Amazon Prime where, you know, uh, you know, somebody exists in this kind of virtual plane and then you have the 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 people that are in real life and they make all of the all of these like suits so you can feel the other person virtually. It's a little bizarre. Um, but it's an interesting premise in the times we live in. I hear voices. <laughs> <laughs> so COVID-19 has transformed our lives. How has that impacted Netflix? Just, just for our users, Netflix started in what, about 1997 as a DVD distribution and sale business? Yes. Big blockbuster right. competition. Right. Exactly. 2007, part of the business I heard or reckoned that kind of got shifted and more into, into streaming. How, how has that business been impacted with COVID-19? You know, from a, from a viewership perspective, you know, we had a great quarter a couple quarters ago based on that, you know, but that's not something you really want to celebrate, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff in the world. Um, but what we're just doing is focusing on making sure that we've got enough capacity available around the world, you know, but as, as the lockdowns get lifted in various places, I think people are finding other things to do with their time, right? The weather's nice. Um, you know, they can, they can do outdoor activities and stuff like that. Uh, and so, you know, the impact was felt much earlier on, which was just making sure that we were in a good place from a capacity standpoint and a relationship standpoint. And, you know, since then it's, it's kind of been, I wouldn't call it business as usual, 
but it has definitely been, you know, way, there's not really the, the scramble that there was right in the beginning. For instance, I, I, I spend, I've noticed I've spent more time on, on, on Netflix now than I actually ever did before throughout the week. The good thing is I'm not watching TV. Anyhow, the, the point that I'm getting to is infrastructure and technology environment, we have actually stretched boundaries and limitations and the restraints that we had with, with COVID-19, with bandwidth, latency, and so on and so forth. Uh, Netflix is actually not streaming at the rates that they used to in January or February because there's more user base. Uh, do you uh, foresee any further challenges um, as we potentially continue to be in this lockdown situation for the next year, year and a half, maybe two? Well, we generally actually have rolled back most of those those caps. So, you know, we did that early on as uh, a preventative measure in cooperation with governments and that requested that we do it. But now when you watch Netflix, you know, you're generally getting it in full quality. And so, you know, we're in a position now where, where we needed capacity, we were able to add capacity. But, you know, it was mostly issues on downstream from us it wasn't necessarily our network that was that was struggling um but you know we we if, if we're in this mode for another two years the much bigger concern is just making sure that we continue to safely produce content which we've already started uh we've already restarted production in various markets um but you know that's that's fraught with you know it's it's slower to make content like that and it's you know there's there's a lot of challenges that you didn't have before um and you know it 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 is just something where, you know, we just hope to stay the course and we hope that, you know, more lockdowns get lifted. And frankly, we're, we just hope there's a vaccine or, uh, or you know, a, a therapeutic that is, uh, that, that works well um, so that we can get back to a world in which we're, you know, making all the shows that everyone wants us to make. Dave, how do you continue to learn? I mean, our industry is changing dynamically every day, every second, we've got something new. Uh, how do you keep yourself going and what mediums, tools, resources do you use to stay on top of everything? Um, you know, Don't say Christian I, Koch's newsletter. Uh, Christian Koch's newsletter is quite useful. Uh, oh, it's my favorite. Google, it's my favorite. Google, just... uh, is it Foundations <laughs> Christian Koch, and I think you'll find a link to it. Uh, quite an interesting newsletter. just kind of gives you the, the greatest hits of what's going on in the infrastructure space every week. Uh, that's, that's my one plug. Um, but in general, stuff like that, and so things like light reading and, and uh, um, you know, various other just kind of, you know, whether it's discussion forums or um, industry newsletter, like, look, I'll spend an hour from time to time just reading the Nanoc mailing list. And there's a lot of completely mundane, boring crap on there, but there's also some really interesting stuff about like how people are are thinking about networks going forward. Um, you know, things like the, the IETF mailing list, things like that as well, most various working group mailing lists um, are, are interesting to read. Um, and then, you know, decent uh, I want to focus on in, right now is like thinking about how does this intersect with business? And so, you know, books like Innovator's Dilemma and stuff like that uh, are really important to kind of understanding the intersection between what we're working on and, you know, how we can leverage that uh, to, to, you know, make our businesses and our infrastructure behind those businesses better. 
I think that's an interesting thing that 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 most people, you know, don't necessarily think about. You know, they think about the resources that you read maybe to learn things in real time, like what new technologies are go, you know, what, what you know, the, the people, the car people read car and driver and the popular mechanics people would read popular mechanics. But thinking about you know, strategy and, and, and understanding the way the people that created some of the innovations that we take advantage of thought about why they're creating um, those innovations or, or how they should think about it. You mentioned earlier the idea of, you know, thinking 10 or 15 years ahead as opposed to thinking, um, you know, what, what what's making you money uh, uh, today. Um, I, I think that's, and, and, and to a certain extent, I would imagine that, not being, not not having to to travel as much, not having to be kind of in the moment as much because we're kind of home on this, you know, seemingly never-ending quarantine. You have more available time to 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 think about, you know, the the macro world and and the macro elements of it rather than just you know singular, you know, technologies. Yeah, and that's the thing is like thinking about the industry as a whole and how this all fits together are like, you know, like I mentioned, so much of it, for example, sits behind AWS, but we still have to think about the infrastructure. I mean, it doesn't really abstract it. You think about how you buy compute in AWS, you're buying it by server type, right? You're buying, you're thinking about that. You're buying network capacity to that server. Like it is literally someone else's computer that's hosted in their data center. And so understanding that is super important. You know, I've spent a decent amount of time reading about the various, you know, cloud technologies, Kubernetes and things like that, that aren't necessarily germane to my day-to-day job, but I think are really important that I understand. Yeah, one of the things in being a technologist, you have to be able to understand cross-platforms. You've got to be able to understand, you know, simple things like power, distribution, air conditioning. What's a data center, right? Yeah. And all the elements that go in a data center um, so that you can connect dots. That's, that's really... Uh, the the core uh, of it all that you got to be able to connect dots. Uh, what's some of the cool tech that you're looking at that our younger generation should potentially uh, start educating themselves on? You know, at this point, when I think about especially networks, which has always been my focus, um, you know, we're kind of almost moving to a uh, I don't want to say post SDN world, you know, software defined networking, but we are in a point now where the industry is is sort of fragmented, um, and there's a lot of potential opportunity there for um, how that technology is going to evolve, how we think about network switches and like and routers and how we traffic around. Um, I think really understanding what the challenges are in that space and what the potential solutions are to those challenges, um, understanding the vendors in that space and what they're really focused on. Because if you sit with various vendors in, in that space, they all kind of have a different story for what they think is important. And I think the thing is, though, trying to understand all those stories is really helpful um, and, and understanding how that comes together. Uh, and then, you know, there's still the big vendors that are out and about things, you know, people like Cisco and Juniper and even now Arista, you could call a big vendor, um, you know, understanding how they think about the world is really important. Um, to to figuring out how to engage in your own career and how to understand um, you know what's going to be important to those people's customers, right? Like you can literally 
think about that and the aspect of, you know, Cisco has probably almost, if not every Fortune 500 as, as its customer, understanding what Cisco thinks is important from an infrastructure perspective is going to give you a pretty good idea as to what the world thinks is important from an infrastructure perspective. Which, to add to your plug, is another reason why Christian's uh, newsletter is so good, because he kind of digs into, you know, the the kind of an, uh, analysts' uh, reports and, and, and the quarterly reports and, and whatnot uh, of each of those companies. 100%. The analyst reports are great, like the ones that you can, especially that you can get, that you can get publicly, um, you know, and you can glean so much information from those reports. Some of them are a little ridiculous. Some of them are, yeah. are not really all that useful. Um, and some of them are just read like a, a Gartner press release. But there are others that are, you know, really good insight into the co-location business and the submarine cable business and the IP transit business and understanding, you know, what is the future there? What are companies betting on? Right. As we as we wrap it up, I guess if uh, I, I want the world to know what uh, Dave Temkin's mo- mo- most most excited about in terms of future technology is it? Are you excited about you know the Hilton Head to Hoboken automatic uh, you know uh, automated vehicle just taking you there so you don't actually have to drive on I ninety five? You could just press a button and then snooze the entire way. What is it? What what is on the horizon that is going to uh, you know get you excited when it finally comes to fruition? I mean, that's a that's a fantastic question, because like I feel like every time I think about that, I'm like, wait, well, I guess we kind of have that technology, but it's not perfect. And so, you know, I, I think in general, what I'm really excited about is ways that that we're going to be able to engage with like content going forward and whether that's Netflix or whether it's YouTube or whether it's, you know, TikTok or whatever, I think that we're seeing that shift pretty dramatically. I think, I think how we figure out how to engage with people um, and how the, what the intersection is of that technology and both kind of social change and what, what that technology drives from a social change perspective and how that makes people's lives better. That's like way more important to me, frankly, than like a cool self-driving car. And so to me, that, that aspect of it, and if you would ask me this question 10 years ago, I would have rattled off a bunch of like pointless tech. And I think like now that I'm an old man, I think about this stuff and I'm like, what's really important to me is like society doesn't melt down. <laughs> right. Uh, more important to you than a refrigerator that tells you when it's time to buy milk. Yeah. Look, I don't need to knock on my refrigerator door <laughs> to get a view of what's inside. I'll open the freaking door. Like the, the carbon footprint of me opening the door to see what's inside versus the carbon footprint of having a two giant LED displays that can display what's in there. And like, it's like the Tesla battery problem. It's like, at what point does that battery and all the rare metals that went into it, is that worse for the earth than like, if you just burn some dinosaurs, we, you know, those types of things are, are existential questions that I'm just glad that people are thinking about frankly. Uh, And I think it's important that, you know, to my point about curiosity before we keep asking those kinds of questions. Didn't work out well for the cat, but um, for us, I think it's, uh, it's, it's going to help society. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Anyway, this has been, this has been incredible. Your story is just, I mean, if I had to like uh, etch out of marble, the type of guest we had in mind when envisioning this podcast, uh, you would be, you, you are our David. Um, I have my pants on though. (laughs) I have no I have no way to verify that actually. Um, Zoom. <laughs> no. 
um, more entertaining um, you know, Twitter accounts than Dave Temkin's Twitter account as he fights with every you know rental car agency from you know up and down up and down the east. This is what I, my my current use of Twitter. It's, right, it's, it's uh, and it works. I mean, my God, they respond to That's you in a second. Right, it's That's incredible. Smart. Like why? If it didn't why work, hurts? I do it. Yeah, why well, hurts? It it it's, it's the old Seinfeld, right? You know how to take the reservation, but you don't know how to keep the reservation, and that's really yeah. the crux of the reservation. Yep, yep. <laughs> anyway, this has been this has been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much for having me, fun, Dave. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.